From the Center for a New American Security, this is Stories from the Back Channel, the podcast about great moments in national security as told from the inside. I'm Elon Goldenberg, the director of the Middle East Security Program here at CNAS and a veteran of the Pentagon and State Department. This is a scene from a staged event. What you hear here are two leaders smiling and shaking hands. This is actually President Trump's trip to Singapore in the summer of 2018, where he met with North Korean leader Kim Jong-un. It was a big deal. It was all over the news. Good evening. You saw it right there, that handshake that has never happened before. An American president, a North Korean dictator, shaking hands here in Singapore just about an hour ago. What you don't see here are all the handlers, all the people that planned for hours and hours, for weeks, just to make this moment happen in just the right way. These people are known simply as advance. They're the ones who scope things out ahead of time, not just to make sure photo ops go off without a hitch, but that the visual symbolism actually advances American diplomacy. It's a job that can be stressful and taxing, but also, as we'll hear in this episode, highly rewarding. I don't create the policy. I wasn't elected when I was in government, but I try at the time to make the policies of the U.S. government happen. And one of the ways to do that is through public affairs. That's Price Floyd. For years, he worked at the highest levels of the State Department, planning out trips for Secretary of State Madeleine Albright. Later, he would do some work for President Clinton as well. So how does one get into the field of working in advance? It turns out Price's career began in one of the most mundane ways you can possibly imagine, showing up for a State Department job fair. I went to a job fair at UDC, University of DC, federal job fair, and I went to the State Department booth and the ARA Bureau, which no longer exists, it was the American Republic Affairs, um, hired me as a GS-5 clerk typist. It's the State Department, so they lost that paperwork, and for some reason I ended up in the Near East Bureau as a GS-5 clerk typist. What does GS-5 mean for people? GS-5 means really, really low on the totem pole. And so I would go get coffee, punch holes in papers to put them in binders. That was my first job at the State Department. So how do you get from there into, I mean, where you eventually get to, um, you know, working on the line and, and working on communication and various right. things? No, what's amazing is I went from a GS-5 clerk typist in 89 to the equivalent of a three-star general running public affairs at the Pentagon by 2009. So the way I did that is the way I still do things today. I do whatever it takes to get the job done. I try to do the best I can at whatever task I'm given. So when I was a GS-5 clerk typist, one of the first jobs I was given was a big stack of paper to punch holes in it to put in a three-ring binder for the bid book for the Near East Bureau. So foreign service officers, diplomats trying to get jobs in embassies would put their name into a job. And this office that I worked in would take all those applicants for the jobs and put them in one book for decision makers to look at. So all their resumes and stuff would be, so my job was to put in the binder. We're not talking a difficult job here. It took 30 minutes to do, but they were amazed. It only took me 30 minutes. I think my other folks in the office would take a couple of days uh, to do such a task. So, And I still do that today for clients in the private sector. So then you move on from there to working on what we call at the State Department, the line. I used to deal with the line when I was uh, working at the State Department. I never really had any idea precisely what the line was. So 
What is the line? So I think the name comes from, in the old days, there used to be a lineup of desks were lined up and people would sit in them. And what they would do is take all the paper that was going to the secretary, the deputy secretary, or the undersecretary for political affairs. So they would handle and coordinate all that paper, the briefing memos, the information memos, action memos, if they're um, requesting the secretary or the deputy secretary to take an action to do something. So we would process all that paper. What they would also do is they do that same job on the road when the secretary was traveling overseas, run her office, their traveling office. And the third thing the officers on the line would do is advance work. So before the secretary would go someplace, these officers would go to these locations and set up the meetings and events in that foreign country for the secretary. Yeah, and that's something obviously they still do. I mean, the foreign policy is just full of of pageantry, generally speaking, um, you know, and that's like critical stuff in terms of setting the table for the, the negotiations and discussions that come afterwards. And the idea is to follow the protocol of that country and your country to make sure there are no surprises, no embarrassments. Everyone knows where to sit and when to sit, um, et cetera. So nothing untowards happens. That's one of the goals. So you did a lot of this advance work. I know? did. Yeah. Yeah. And you've, and I never did advance work. I, I would sometimes be on these trips where you show up and the, the poor advance person has been there for days managing things and getting it all ready. But like, I don't understand how you know this actually works. Uh, so maybe tell me about some of your experiences there. You had one, I know, early on in your career that really defined and got you excited about this work, which was traveling to Israel with uh, Secretary Albright. So maybe we can start by talking about that one. This was the secretary's first trip to Israel as secretary of state. So it was a big deal. And unlike other advanced trips I'd done, for this one, I went to the pre-policy meetings where they discussed what policy initiatives they were going to try to accomplish. And big on the agenda for that trip was Middle East peace. President Clinton and I will do everything we possibly can uh, to assist Israelis and Palestinians in their effort to achieve a fair and durable peace. One of the things we we're going to do was try to get the Israelis to be a bit more forthcoming with the Palestinians in some upcoming negotiations. So I knew that in the back of my mind that we had an ask for the Israelis. Uh, violence is not the answer. Differences need to be brought to the table and solutions can only come uh, from negotiations. And Madeleine Albright is coming here as a welcome guest, a much welcomed guest, with I think a clear understanding that in this situation, security is the key to peace. When I arrive in Israel, the first thing I have to set up is a visit to Prime Minister Rabin's grave to pay respects to um, the former prime minister who had been assassinated. So I tried to think of what could this event, this visit to his grave, how could that further our efforts when we're dealing with the Israelis? And so what I quickly figured out and tried to plan for was making sure everyone in Israel knew that Secretary Albright respected Prime Minister Rabin and was paying her respects to his grave. So therefore, I set up the event with that in mind. I made sure that the press corps was close enough but also far enough away to have good camera shots, a good video shot of the event. I made sure I briefed Secretary Albright about where the cameras would be and how she would walk up to the grave. For those who haven't been to this particular cemetery, it's quite beautiful. There's trees, beautiful graves, it's very solemn. And I briefed the secretary, had, told her to make sure she has a stone or a pebble with her, to place it on the tomb, 
when she gets there, she could have it with her or she could pick it up on the ground on the way to the Which is something that's part of the Jewish tradition. Exactly. And I told her when she gets there to put the stone on the, the gravesite, but hold her hand there for a moment to give the cameras a chance to take a picture. She could bow her head if she wanted to, close her eyes or not, whatever she felt comfortable doing to show her respect. The next day, top of the fold and all the papers was this photo of Secretary Albright paying her respects. And the spokesman at the time, Jamie Rubin, thanked me for kind of making sure this was set up and this happened. And since that moment, I've been doing public affairs, public relations, communications every day. And the only thing I think those of us in this community can do is try to create those moments where it becomes more likely for the outcome to happen that we want. I don't create the policy. I wasn't elected when I was in government, but I try at the time to make the policies of the U.S. government happen. And one of the ways to do that is through uh, public affairs. Yeah, and I think it's just as, as a Middle East guy who spent a lot of time in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, just to explain to our listeners how critical that is. I mean, this is coming the year or two after Abin was assassinated. He's still a giant in Israeli politics, and he was assassinated for pursuing peace and if a secretary of state's visit is being seen by the Israeli public and by the voting public in Israel as deeply respectful of her being and capturing this moment, and then she shows up the next day to talk to the Israeli prime minister, um, who I believe at the time was already was Benjamin Netanyahu, That's actually. Yep, um, you're right. Now that puts Netanyahu in a harder position in terms of saying no, because he knows the public is with her, the press is with her. And it makes a difference. And as somebody who sat in some of these negotiation rooms afterwards and actually worked for one of the people you're working with on that trip, Martin Indyk, um, the public perception makes all the difference. And these moments aren't fake. Um, the secretary wanted to go pay her respects and, and have it be the first thing she did. Um, this was real. And the idea was to make sure people knew about it and to leverage those moments for positive change. All those differences need to be brought to the table. Uh, that is... Uh, the whole purpose of what we try have been trying to do, that is how the United States will continue uh, to push and play a useful role. So not all the trips are as easy as Israel. Um, you worked on some pretty crazy trips. Right. Um, maybe tell us a little bit about working advance for a pretty you know, straightforward regime in North Korea and a visit right. like that. So at the end of the Clinton administration, there was a big push to try to get North Korea to denuclearize. We'd finally agreed to do a visit to North Korea, have the Secretary of State visit North Korea. So I was one of the people who did the advance to North Korea. So it was both serious and had amazingly hilarious moments during the trip. The first funny moment came right at the beginning when I flew into Seoul. I go to the embassy to get briefed. I'm not sure what's happening. And we're told we're going to the DMZ right away. We're going to Pyongyang, to North Korea. Welcome to the demilitarized zone, 160 miles long, about two and a half miles wide. It's a border barrier that was created by the Korean Armistice Agreement in 1953. Intersects that famous 38th parallel north and divides Korea roughly in half. I said, OK. So we go to the DMZ and everyone else gets out of the van and goes through the Blue House 
the UN-controlled house to check their passports and stuff. But for some reason, I'm chosen to drive the van across. I have an interpreter with me who's an American who speaks Korean. So we go up to the DMZ itself. An American sergeant comes to the door. I roll the window down. He barks at me, orders about what's going to happen. Follow the Humvee that comes in front of you. If anything happens, you know, immediately evacuate the vehicle, run back to the South Korea side. So my uh, colleague, who I've just met, who's the interpreter in the passenger seat, he's getting kind of freaked out. And so in moments of high stress, I use sarcasm and humor to try to lighten the moment. So I say, so this is not a good time to, for someone to have poor impulse control, is it? So this guy then starts freaking out. He's like, oh, my God, we're crossing the DMZ with this nut driving the car who's just going to do some crazy thing. Anyway, I don't. I drive across the DMZ. We then drive all the way up to Pyongyang. We set up these events. It is the most bizarre place I've ever been. Traffic cops with no traffic, almost no electricity. According to someone I talked with there, they just turned on the power to some of the buildings when we arrived. A bizarre, made-up world in North Korea. North Korea's propaganda machine painted a very different picture of their leader. He supposedly penned operas, had a photographic memory, produced movies, and was said to have shot 11 holes in one on the first round of golf he ever played. In that scenario, like one of the things you're doing in advance is going to check out various locations where the secretary might visit. So right. what does that look like in well, North so, Korea? Right. So what's amazing is some of these visits are all cookie cutter. You're going to be getting a motorcade. You're going to go to a foreign ministry or to a third site where there's going to be a bilateral meeting between you and the other side. The rooms all over the world all look the same. It's a big table. There's chairs on both sides. You know, So some of this stuff is normal. The stuff that was really odd in North Korea were the side events, the extracurricular activities that they recommended. One was a, a rather bizarre circus they wanted us to go to where they had live dancing bears. They even had like a high wire act that the bears would do with the backdrop of a hydroelectric power plant, which Marxists seem to be obsessed with hydroelectric power. In recent years, North Korea has completed the construction of several hydroelectric power plants. The work but on which started. In order to get the bear to dance and to go across the high wire, they had an electric cattle prod, which was horrific. It was not entertainment, it was, looked like torture. So we, of course, recommended we not do the electrified dancing bear um, <laughs> entertainment thing. <laughs> Another one was I had to go uh, do the advance for uh, pay respects to the great leader, the father mm. of North Korea, who is entombed in a glass sarcophagus in his mausoleum in this big shrine, which also has his Mercedes Benz and his train car and other things. So we did that visit. At the end, uh, Secretary Albright did go to uh, see the glass sarcophagus. It was a, a series of bizarre events. When the secretary finally arrived, it got even weirder. She had to go to see a huge display, a gymnastic display at a big stadium that they put on at the last second. Kim Jong-il brought Albright to an elaborate performance in a stadium in Pyongyang to honor him and his workers' party. You know, 100,000 people in a stadium, one side of it filled with people having flip cards that here in the U.S. when you have flip card, you seem like go Tigers or go, you know, Cowboys, or Dallas Cowboy fans. These folks, there must have been 20,000 or more of them did flip cards to the glories of hydroelectric power again. 
and also flip card of an intercontinental ballistic missile launching um, with flip cards and even with the fumes and the fire from the exhaust of the missile going off as it launched into um, space. So this is, I mean, you know, we're talking about the crazy stories that, that come along with this and the, the weird things they might want you to do. But this is genuine diplomacy, right? So they're coming up with these ideas. How are you negotiating with your North Korean counterparts on this stuff to figure it out? So some of the stuff you do in these situations is try to avoid embarrassment. Right? So avoid putting the secretary in an awkward position that would look bad. Uh, hence, stay away from the cattle prod dancing bears. But we did have uh, Sweden is our protecting power there. So we had a relationship with the Swedish charge. I don't think he was the ambassador at the time, just a, a number two, an acting ambassador. So he knew some of the stuff, but not much because it's North Korea. So m- most Westerners know nothing about even the ones that are there. Don't know anything about it. So number one, avoid embarrassment. Number two, make sure that I negotiated access for our press corps to see and hear everything. So this was new to the North Koreans. They don't have a free press. They don't understand the free press. So I had to negotiate a whole set of things for our press there. Number one was allowing the press in the country. Number two was allowing them to bring their cameras into the country. Number three was to allow at least one of them to bring a a sat phone, a satellite phone, because there was no cell phone coverage in North Korea. So how do you get information out? Then negotiate with the North Koreans to use the one a video link that they had in country that actually CNN had given them a, a satellite truck. So that's the only way to, to upload video and, and to um, do newscasts from North Korea. Yeah. When the press corps arrived, all of them had minders like we did from North Korea to follow them. This created another opportunity for negotiation. The folks from NBC went off campus, as it were, and wanted to get some good video of local Pyongyang. So they went to a barbershop, and they took some photos of people going in and out of the barbershop. One of the people was a colonel in the North Korean military. When he saw the NBC camera crew, he didn't take kindly to that. He confiscated the camera, confiscated the cameraman's digital camera. Mm. So video camera and digital camera. So I had to negotiate to get those things back from the North Koreans. And one of the ways I did it, I um, had just had a son born, and he was one. I had a picture of my son in my portfolio, and I made sure when I'd opened my portfolio, my, my notebook, that his picture was always there. And they started asking about my son. And once I tried to make those connections, real connections with real people, they've got kids too, yeah. um, and through an interpreter tell stories about my, at the time, one-year-old. You also, uh, I think you brought them a pretty cool gift, right. too, so, which so, is, um, doesn't hurt. So Kim Jong-il, at the time the leader of North mm-hmm. Korea, the father of the current leader of North Korea, was obsessed with the Chicago Bulls. Mm-hmm. So during trips like this, we often have gifts that we exchange with our foreign colleagues. And usually the person who handles that is a, a protocol officer who will do this exchange. And often the exchange is, protocol officer to protocol officer. The, the leaders and stuff don't actually give the gifts themselves to each other. We didn't have a protocol officer in North Korea because we don't have an embassy. So I was the acting protocol officer for the state dinner with Kim Jong-il. So our gift was a basketball signed by the Chicago Bulls to Kim Jong-il. Lee. 
believe it or not, Jong-il was reportedly a big NBA fan, and in particular, of the 90s-era Chicago Bulls. And so we had it on a nice leather platform, and so I presented the basketball signed by the Chicago Bulls to Kim Jong-il, and he thanked the Secretary of State, and, uh, and I went back to my seat at the state dinner. Here he is with the former U.S. Secretary of State, Madeleine Albright, from whom Jong-il received a signed Michael Jordan basketball. It's actually a U.S.-based Facebook page devoted to getting that ball back. I think those kinds of things where a foreign leader knows we get them, we understand them, we know what their interests are, that helped the real substantive negotiations as well. Yeah, no, and that is a key thing because I've also been, when it's not foreign leaders and it's not happening at the same level and you don't have all the support that comes with and you're just a lowly action officer like me doing like a deputy assistant secretary trip to the region, sometimes you end up going to like the Pentagon gift store and just buying something and it's kind of a disaster. <laughs> um, you know, you show up in Saudi Arabia and they're like, here's your gold Rolex, which of course you have to all give back or everybody gets an iPad. Um and then you're like, and here's like this, you know, little memorabilia tchotchke thing with a picture of the Pentagon on it that I bought five minutes before leaving for the trip. Like that doesn't really work when you're meeting with world leaders, no, especially I, like sensitive no. meetings. Like I've that. never thought we've done that well. I've always yeah. thought foreign countries do that kind of the protocol thing so much better. And even the meals, they do mm -hmm. better. You know, you can go to some quote unquote third world country for meetings and the meals that you will be served there, just as a staffer, are amazing. And we don't do that when people come to visit us um, here in the U.S. Although as an um, advanced guy, did you also have a lot of times when you uh, basically didn't get to eat while everybody is sitting around the table having the super fancy five-course meals? I've seen those things happen, too. That happens, too. But my, my little... Um, one of my challenges as a, I'm doing air quotes around challenges um, as an advance officer before the official party would arrive in country and I was doing the advance I'd always go eat and make sure I took part in the local food it almost always ended in disaster because I'm not very smart in where I eat and what I eat so I was always getting sick and then they would communicate back to the traveling party, price is sick, make sure not to eat. Like, don't eat the beanie weenies at the Hilton Hotel in Addis Ababa because that's not going to work. See, bad. I was actually just in Addis for the first time ever. Cool city. But uh, um, So now you move on. You also worked on some presidential advance. I did. I did the um, Clinton-Yeltsin summit. We didn't come here expecting to change each other's mind about our disagreement, but we both did come here hoping to find a way of shifting the accent from our disagreement to the goals, the tasks, and the opportunities we share. And we have succeeded. So I did that. On that one, I was doing what's called, I just did hotels. It was all mm -hmm. logistics. When the president travels someplace, often there'll be 700 plus people that go with the president when they go secret service and, and helicopter crews and drivers and support staff, communications. They set up an office just like we do for when they have the secretary traveling with them. So that there's a secretary's office, there's the president's office. There's, I mean, there's a lot that goes into these trips. It was amazing a visit. Um, Clinton was in a wheelchair because he mm -hmm. had torn his ligaments in his knee when he fell down some stairs previously. Yeltsin looked to be drunk the whole time during the visit. Um, Clinton wasn't taking pain pills for his knee because he wanted to be on top of his game meeting with the Russians. The president's offsiders said Clinton was unconcerned that a wheelchair could weaken his image. 
and it provided a positive boost for the image of President Yeltsin, who's usually the invalid. I even have a photo of me and Clinton meeting when he's in the wheelchair right before they put him on a food crate to raise him up so he could get into back into Air Force One because he couldn't go up the steps because he was in a wheelchair. The latest in presidential transport, a hydraulic catering container. Yeah, and there's all kinds of stuff. What's the, I mean, if I remember correctly, there's something called the beast that travels with him, right? right? The, his, well, his limo. It's the yeah. same one here. Yeah, yeah. So that's the limo. But they also, they come with like a whole, like all your own secret service cars and everything like come with. You don't even use any of the cars in the local country. Is that Sometimes some of the motorcade will. So you have mm-hmm. like, you know, s- staff stuff that'll be in that they don't need to be mm-hmm. armored, but other stuff comes with in a big, what, C-130 or C-17. Mm-hmm. They fly them in. The helicopters mm-hmm. as well. It's an amazing and immense endeavor for the president to travel. So one common story that a lot of foreign policy hands have is when I was with the secretary or I was with the president and I missed the motorcade. You ever have one of those, miss the motorcade of experiences? So what's interesting is I had one of those moments. I'd come back. We'd gone around the world on a trip. We'd started in Washington. We'd gone to Alaska to refuel, then to Japan, then Mongolia, then Russia, then Prague, London, and then back to Washington. Mm -hmm. Um, Long trip, exhausting trip. So one morning I woke up and the sun was out. So if you do these trips and you're an advanced guy, you never wake up when the sun is up. You always wake up when it's still dark. So I woke up, it was sunny outside. I knew I'd missed the motorcade. So I start grabbing my clothes to put them on, to run out of my hotel room to get to the motorcade. But I'm not in a hotel, I'm at my house. <laughs> I was just sleeping, but I almost gave myself a heart attack because I thought I'd missed the motorcade. That was actually a sign. It might be time to take a break, for, maybe take a couple of days off. Yeah, and the reason that the reason people are so terrified about missing the motorcade is like there's a whole bubble of security around the motorcade, and it moves faster than anything else moves. It's not like you can hop a cab and somehow get back to the motorcade. And even if you find your way back to where the the president or the secretary of state is, the chances you're going to convince the security people to let you back in is low because you got to get through all the, before you even get to the State Department security, which might be able to actually recognize you, you have to get through the local country security and they're all going to be paranoid. I mean, my biggest uh, motorcade moment, at least, was actually not missing a motorcade either. It was when I was working for Secretary Kerry and he was doing these negotiations between the Israelis and Palestinians. We're all like in a hotel in Jordan entire team of like 50 people and he's on the phone with Bibi Netanyahu and Mahmoud Abbas and he's going back and forth between them and Saab Erkat and all these guys trying to negotiate a deal to restart negotiations in like late 2013. Kerry has no immediate plans to meet with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu on this trip though U.S. officials continue working with Israeli officials on a return to talks. And so he thinks we're there and so everybody's, we're sitting in the Sheridan and I'm on. It's like, okay, everybody go downstairs and get in the motorcade and get ready. So everybody goes downstairs because you don't, right? Secretary comes last, right? Right. And so we're all waiting there. We all go downstairs. We get in our cars. We're sitting in this basically closed down parking lot underground. 20 minutes. Wait, no, it's not happening yet. Come, come back up. Everybody comes back up. Wait, no, back downstairs. Again, 20 minutes and fumes. Up, down, up, down, three hours. Um, 
because the negotiations were just going in unpredictable ways, you know, I think by the time the secretary's team got to Ramallah, which is where they were flying afterwards, probably half the people had lost like a quarter of their brain cells or were high on God knows what, just waiting for the secretary of state to come out. But that's like the logistics of how this works. You wait for the boss. Right. Um, No, there's a famous one, not a motorcade, it was a plane. So mm. when Baker was secretary of state, they were doing a trip to Asia and they were refueling in the Fijis. So Bob Hunter, um, who went on to be ambassador to NATO, was on the trip. He didn't get, they were refueling, he didn't get back to the plane. After the refueling, he had gotten off the plane for some reason to go shop or something. And they left without him. They left him in the Fijis. So talk about no taxi to catch up. I don't know how Bob got home, but they left him behind. Um, So I made it my mission never to leave the plane unless I did it with a big group of people hopefully the secretary herself with that group so that the plane wouldn't leave without me. You know, you did this for years, but then you left right. um, in the late 2000s, right? right. End of, near the end of the Bush administration. Why, why did you leave? So by 2007, I'm office director for an office um, of the Office of Media Affairs. And so I'm setting up all the media in the U.S., interviews for senior officials at the State Department. And I'm also coordinating over sees appearances or appearances by our officials on foreign media. So we start getting messages back from overseas, in particular the UK, requesting us to stop doing interviews with UK media. And in fact, they said the reason um, for that, the more interviews we were doing and the more efforts we made to explain US policy, the less popular we got. And it became apparent the reason for this is people were judging us rightly, by the way, by our actions not what our policy statements were, but what our actions on the ground were. So our actions on the ground were Abu Ghraib and the abuses that happened there, what was going on in Guantanamo um, at the time, the fact that Guantanamo existed, and the other actions that administration was taking that were viewed as anathema to the idea of America. So after a while, I found myself unable to kind of do media affairs and try to sell this stuff when I realized, in essence, it was a lie. And the moment for me really came when President Bush gave an interview and someone asked the president about on Iraq and the weapons of mass destruction, uh, if he knew then, in 2003, when we launched the attacks in Iraq, what he knows now, that there actually aren't any weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. If he knew that then, would he do anything different? And he said no. Uh, on the other hand, uh, those reports did point out that Saddam Hussein was very dangerous that he had the capacity to make weapons. That, uh, and I'm convinced that if he were in power today, the world would be a lot worse off. And that struck me as odd, uh, to put it mildly. The equivalent thing was that I came into my mind was if someone's on trial for shooting someone and their justification was uh, it was a dark alley, I couldn't really see anything, I thought they were reaching for a gun. And it turned out to be a can of Dr. Pepper that they pulled out. It wasn't a gun. If they're on trial and their own attorney asked them, now, if you knew that was just a Dr. Pepper and not a gun, would you have shot that man in the alley? Well, the person would say no. If they said yes, they're going to prison because they killed a person. So that I could no longer kind of do that lie and keep my job. And so you know, I swore an oath to the Constitution. And when I realized that the policy was not what it really was, uh, in other words, I was telling a lie, I could no longer fulfill my duties. So I... It actually became quite easy when I realized that, and I resigned within a week. Wow. And it does, I mean, it definitely, I think it's a 
good way for us to end this discussion because it really goes to show how important communications and policy are together. You know, I think you've shown us how effective communications are and how central they can be to advancing policy. Um, but at the end of the day, if you don't believe in the policy, you can't do the communications. And if you have bad policy, no amount of communications can fix that. Yeah. People always think you can spin your way out of something. I don't spin. I don't know. Um, I try to explain things to people in a way they can understand. And if that thing's good, then it's not that hard to do. If it's bad, not only is it hard to do, it can often be impossible because actions always trump words. People judge you by your actions. That's Price Floyd. These days, he remains a communications and national security expert in Washington, D.C. Next time on Stories from the Back Channel, we'll hear from Kayla Williams, a former Army translator who is using her combat experience to inform policymakers on veterans' care. I decided to uh, major in international relations and try to make a difference in our policies from a higher level because what I saw on the ground was so profoundly not working. Stories from the Back Channel is a production of the Center for New American Security and is produced by RES Audio. I'm Elon Goldenberg, and I've been your host. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast, and while you're there, leave us a review.